Our scripture reading is uh, from the first chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And when they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day... He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for his purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, and I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus As he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Open your Bibles once again, this time to Micah chapter 7. We're going to start there. We'll end up in John 1 after a bit, but we need to build toward that. So we're going to start in Micah 7. Talking today about behold the Lamb, taking John the Baptist's phrase that Jared read for us just a little bit ago from John 1. Behold the Lamb, talking about Christ. When I was growing up, my family had a flock of sheep that we raised for a number of years. And it was a blast to watch the lambs after they were born and how quickly they would get out into the pasture and they'd run and jump and play. And they're right up there with you know puppies and kittens. They're just really cute. This time of year, when we celebrate the coming of God's Son to earth, we focus on the wonder of that incarnation where He became flesh. We rightly marvel at His humble birth as we've already sung this morning. We marvel at the fact that He would make Himself the the very God of creation, the God of all, to be vulnerable and cared for by Mary and Joseph. It is good to be in awe over these truths. 
Jesus' humble birth pointed to a part of his identity. And when we read Scripture, we find uh, quite a few different names and titles for Jesus. For Think about Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David. You have Christ or Messiah, uh, same basic term, one from Hebrew, one from Greek. We have Lord. And then we just read one, another one here in John chapter 1. The Lamb of God. As we celebrate the coming of God's Son into this world, I'd like for us to explore today, what does it mean for Him to be called the Lamb of God? Why that term? And, and that term is going to be used, we'll see next time, uh, because we'll, we'll start out in Luke 2 and, and we'll work our way to Revelation, where we're going to find that that's going to be His chief name. The Lamb of God. The Lamb Why is he called the Lamb? Jesus was born to be the Lamb of God. And calling him the Lamb was not like I was referencing at the beginning. It wasn't to call to our minds how cute lambs are, because they they are. That's not the point. That's not why he's called the Lamb of God, to make us think of cute lambs jumping around through the pasture. He's called the Lamb of God to call to our minds the role that lambs played in Israel's worship. And one purpose that they served, that all those lambs served, was to point to a key role that Jesus played in God's plan of redemption. They provide us with a picture of Jesus' role in redemption, the part that he played Thousands upon thousands of lambs had been sacrificed prior to Jesus coming to earth. Jesus is not called a lamb. He is not one lamb among many. He is called the lamb of God. He is the one lamb with no equal. No other lamb comes close to him. They served as types and shadows of Jesus, but that was the best they could do. They're not in the same class as Jesus when it comes to lambs. Jesus is a lamb with no equal. Jesus is the one lamb able to take away our sins. That and other reasons set him apart from all the others. He's the one lamb able to take away Our sins. No lamb before him of all those hundreds of thousands of lambs could ever take away sins. We're going to see today. And so, in this sermon this morning, and in one we're going to have next week, let us join our hearts in worship. The sermon is a key part of worship. I know sometimes we refer to singing as worship, and that's fine. That's appropriate, but that's not the only worship that we do. So our Lord's Supper is worship, and and the giving that we do as we come into the building, that's worship. Prayer is worship, and the preaching of the Word is worship. But this morning, I I want that to be the primary thing that we do in this sermon time is to worship. As we are thinking through these things about Jesus and why He is the Lamb of God, what that means, I want this to be a time of great worship for us. Let us lift Him high so that we see the glory of the Lamb of God. As the Lamb of God, Jesus embodied God's love for sinners. And we're going to think through a little bit of the wealth of Old Testament passages that give hope to hopeless sinners. And so, with that hope, there are at least two backdrops, primary backdrops that we're going to consider today. One is God's character, but the other will be, we'll see in a minute, our plight, our problem. So, we're going to consider some Old Testament passages that give hope to hopeless sinners and do that first. So here in Micah chapter 7, beautiful verses. I'm always moved when I read these. I love when my Bible reading plan takes me here or my mind, you know, what was that that Micah said? And I go back and read it again. And it's always glorious to read this. Micah 7, verse 18. 
Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever. And you think about how where Micah fits in here with the minor prophets, Israel has been so sinful for so long and God has promised judgment. But for him to say, for God to say this through this prophet Micah, that there's no one like our God. He pardons iniquity. Yes, he chastises, he judges as he needs to, but he pardons iniquity, passes over rebellious acts. He doesn't retain his anger forever. And then to go on, because, and this is why, he delights in unchanging love. What a wonderful thing to say about our God. He delights in unchanging love. He's not like any other God. Verse 19, He will again have compassion on us. Oh, how the Jews needed to hear that. Because you think about people like Jeremiah and, you know, the, the weeping prophet. You know, he, he, he's one that went through Jerusalem after the destruction had come to them and wept over them. And he saw just the, the, the horror of it all. And they needed messages like this. Yes, God had to chastise His people. But He will again have compassion on us. And then one of those beautiful pictures of how God deals with our sin for those who trust in Him. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. So it's like He's going to just walk over them and smash them into the ground. He's going to pulverize them so that they no longer have any, any claim on us. And then another beautiful picture. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So how beautiful that is. And you think about how, how deep like the oceans are in, a, in the really, a really big sea is. And, you know, and for us, that can be pretty scary, especially when you think about you know, how we can't even just you know, go down there on our own. You'd get crushed. It's so deep. And he's saying that God will take our sins, the sins of those who trust in Him, and He will cast them into the sea so that they drop to the bottom and covered with all that water. And, of course, these are pictures. But, you know, it's, it's hard for us sometimes when we, we think about, you know, I, I realize what a sinner I am. I realize how I've, I've sinned against God so grievously. Could He ever forgive me? And would that really ever stick? And Micah says, oh, yes, because this is what God will do with your sins. Another beautiful passage, we won't turn there, but have it on the, in the screen in a moment. How we rejoice in another Old Testament passage that tells us these promises. The promise to sinners in Isaiah 118, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And so that's that second backdrop where we, we realize that our sin problem is overwhelming. It is beyond our ability to solve. And so we get this promise, this beautiful promise in Isaiah 1. Isaiah's going to have a lot of hard things to say to God's people, but he also has some of the most wonderful promises that we think about. You've got Isaiah 7 and 9, you know, and you've got Emmanuel and the Prince of Peace and all these wonderful things. But here in, there's another precious one in Isaiah 1:18. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. We can't do anything about them, but Jesus can. God can. And so he pictures our sins here as scarlet and then, part I didn't read, crimson as well. Those, those terms, scarlet and crimson, the, the picture for us there is that our sin is so great, it's like we just murdered somebody and now our hands are covered in blood. They're scarlet, they're crimson. And we're stained because, you know, blood stains. And, and so we end up being just permanently stained with our guilt is the idea. A passage we're going to look at in a little bit, Hebrews chapter 10, uses a word, a New Testament word for sin. Uh, the one you, you might be familiar with, it's the missing the mark. But we sometimes think of that as, you know, well, it's like, like I, I tried to hit the mark, you know, with my bow and arrow, but, but I did my best, but I admit it's not that at all. 
And here's a quote from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It, it, this word shows in sin that there is an evil will. That's our will. An evil intention. That is, a conscious apostasy from, from God and opposition to God. Okay, that's pretty serious, right? That's the stain. That's what we're stained with. Our sin. Our sinfulness. And so if we're stained with such guilt, how can we ever become white as snow? Well, we need a substitute. And we learn also through those many, many sacrifices in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament helps us to understand that this, that blood must be shed to remove our crimson stains. Someone or something has to die in our place to remove our sins. They have to die so we can live. And those sacrifices, Hebrews 9 tells us that those sacrifices taught us this, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Blood has to be shed. Because of God's righteousness, He could not just say, you know, I tell you what, guys, you've been pretty bad, but let's just, let's just forget it. You know, I'll just, I'll just, you know, wink at your sin. No, it required blood to be shed. Hebrews 9.22. So that's where it takes us to this idea of a lamb. And I want us to think through some of the the Old Testament background to this idea of a lamb. You know, why would he call him the lamb of God? And and so there's rich, rich Old Testament teaching about this. First, think this, that when God was going to make Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants, the 12 tribes, uh, into a nation. And he's getting ready to, to deliver them from Egypt, their captivity in Egypt. One of the things that he does, an event he uses, that's kind of the, the final blow to the Egyptians, is what we know of as the Passover event, the original Passover God took that event and turned it also, intended it to be a festival for them to remember. To remember that God and how He delivered them. And a part of that remembrance would be that lambs would be central figures there. Again, not because they're cute, but because they have to die. Lambs would be central to that. So turn over back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, and I'm going to read a few verses. I'm going to kind of skip around a little bit, but I'll tell you where I'm at, um, because we don't have time to read all of this, but just the key things for our lesson today. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, and here's when the Passover is instituted. God said, to Moses and Aaron, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. And then skip down to verse five. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male. That's key. Unblemished. A year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And then verse 11. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Because remember, he's getting ready to to bring them quickly out of Egypt. And he says, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, Yahweh's Passover. And it's interesting, in Jewish history, they came to refer to the lamb as just the Passover. Instead of calling it the Passover lamb, it's the Passover. It is the Lord's Passover. Because God said, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, this day will be a memorial to you. In other words, I'm giving it to you for this original event to deliver you, but I want it to be an annual festival for you. You shall celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So that is prescribed in the law. And then there's more about lambs prescribed in the law. That kind of starts our thinking. And we're going to see something that was a little earlier than that. But we're talking about how the law prescribed. This is what I want you to do. God telling them. That's where we start out with the Passover. But then think about other things. After Egypt was delivered, or Israel was delivered from Egypt, lambs continued to be a key part of their sacrificial system. And there were there were bulls and goats and heifers and things like that that were given and doves and pigeons and and then there were, you know, uh, grains and wine and different things. But lambs continued to be a key part. For example, two lambs were sacrificed each day in the tabernacle and then later the, temp- the temple. So, That meant every day would begin and end with a lamb being sacrificed. Talk about keeping it front and center. This whole idea of a lamb. Because of where God's going with this, right? So the first thing they do in the morning, they bring a lamb in the temple, they sacrifice it. And they close out the day doing the same thing. Bring a lamb in, you sacrifice it. And then in between, there's all those other sacrifices that the law prescribed throughout all that day. And and what we find in these passages over and over again, as we already saw, is only lambs without defect were accepted. And and so you can see how that's pointing to the sinlessness of Christ. Okay. There were also other special occasions prescribed in the law. Every firstborn uh, person was to be redeemed with a lamb in Exodus 34. Uh, also, lambs could be offered as peace offerings or as sin offerings. There were some peace offerings for different reasons that you might have sometimes to give thanks to God and other reasons or as sin offerings. Also, when a leper was healed, uh, you know, a leper, not a leopard, but a leper, when they they were put outside the camp so they didn't infect other people. And it was because the camp was to be whole, considered holy and kept holy. But. If God healed them, they got to come back in, but not until atonement was made for them. Because see, that was a picture. Their, their, their leprosy was a picture of sin that we all have. And, and so atonement had to be made for them. A lamb could be offered uh, in that sacrifice. And then just one more. Lambs were also part of the burnt offerings for the festival of Pentecost. And, and so you find that lambs throughout factor large in God's program, in the worship of Israel, because they're pointing to something far greater. Well, let's also consider in history some key turning points in Israel's history where lambs were part of the sacrifices. You remember, we, we talked about this recently in 1 Samuel 7, right, in Sunday, adult Sunday school, when the the Ark of the Covenant had gotten captured by the Philistines because the, the Israelites were uh, not following the Lord. And, and so when it was returned finally, Samuel called to the people, return to the Lord with your whole heart. And when they did, they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And they were told that Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Later on in their history, uh, once they have kings, they um, 
you'd have your, you know you read and you have a good king and then you have some bad kings and you have a good king and you have some bad kings. Well, one of the good kings, uh, he became a good king, Hezekiah. He brought about revival in the land, and so in his revival uh, that he brought. Uh, the uh, lambs were part of the burnt offerings that to kick off this revival, if you will. But after him, the Passover was neglected for years. And you remember in Josiah's reform, so here another good king comes along, Josiah, and, and he, they, they're repairing the temple, they find the law, and they're, you know, he's reading that, and he's like, oh my, we're supposed to be doing the Passover all this time, and we haven't been doing it for a long time. So he decides, okay, we're going we're gonna to do the Passover. So let's figure out, how do we have to do that? What does the law say? And then he, in wanting to do everything he can to get the people to, to you know, carry out God's word as they're supposed to, he donated 30,000 lambs and young goats. 30,000 to be sacrificed. Second Chronicles 35. In Ezra's day, when they dedicated the rebuilt temple. So you remember our minor prophet study. So, you know, they were real sinful and God judged them. He brought some of them off, you know, Syria, scattered them around. And then later for Judah, Babylon carried them off, you know, and... And so when they came back and, and rebuilt the temple finally, Ezra 6 tells us that 400 lambs were offered as part of the sin offering for the people. So the point of that is that lambs figured large in Israel's worship. Every day lambs were being killed, being, being sacrificed. And then there were times where there would be thousands of them you know, it came around in, in the Passover, like with Josiah. Um, and you think about this, 30,000, the law said they had to be done. There was a certain window at, before twilight or at twilight. There was a certain, you know, several hours there that that fit. And they had to get all of them killed during that time. And and so that that's and that, that would continue on the way that they would uh, carry out Passover. And they had, a, had it all down to fine science, but... After thousands of lambs had been sacrificed, there was still a big problem. Turn now all the way to the right in your Bible to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. We've already alluded to that a little bit. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. There's still a big problem. And you'd think, if you're thinking about this from... The world's perspective is they look at religions, and you take, you know, world religions and college and stuff. They would be, you know, kind of confused about this. It's like, okay, you know, hundreds of thousands of lambs, maybe millions, I don't know how many have been sacrificed in their history. They've died. There's still a big problem. How could there be a big problem after all those lambs? Well, we're going to find out. First, we learn here in Hebrews 10 that the law's sacrifices couldn't decisively cleanse. They couldn't actually cleanse us. And, and he's going to talk about one place, cleansing our conscience. So Hebrews 10, verse 1, For the law, that's the law of Moses, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, in other words, they serve as types, pictures pointing to something greater, they don't have the very form of things, that is what they're pointing to, so you think about a lamb, those lambs are pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God. They were a shadow. He was the actual, the, re, the reality. He says those can never buy the same sacrifices year by year. They're drawing out how just thousands of sacrifices every year. He says, which they offer continually every day. Remember, there were at least two and then a whole bunch in between that were sacrificed. They could never make perfect those who draw near. The, the people, as they would come, and they would bring the lamb to be sacrificed, or maybe a goat or you know, a bull or whatever. As they drew near, they could not, those sacrifices could not decisively cleanse them. And then we find out that the law of sacrifices served as reminders that sin was still present. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. And so, every time you come and you, you bring your animal, 
you remember, sin's still a problem. Year after year we come. It's like, I mean, Josiah, I mean, there were 30,000. Surely we're good for a while, right? No. There's a reminder. It's a good reminder. We needed that reminder. They needed it. And it reminded them this. Animal blood could only provide a temporary covering of sin. It was something to, to, if you will, get them by. Something that would make them temporarily acceptable to God that was based on something that was going to happen still future to them. Something greater. All of those sacrifices pointed to what Christ would do. The salvation that He would provide. They pointed everyone to Him. So, in the Old Testament, everything points toward the cross. And, of course, we everything points back to the cross for us. We look back in remembrance. Animal blood could only provide a temporary covering for sin. It could not take away sin. Verse 4, and this is a key verse for us. We have to remember. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You might take your animal to the temple and slaughter it there, sacrifice it, burn it, and think, okay, great, it took away my sin. No, you'd be wrong. It didn't take away your sin. It only covered it. Jesus would be the one we're going to see who will take away sin. He's the only lamb that could. Why couldn't those animals... You know, you think about it, you know, cute little lamb, sweet little lamb, you know, and raised them, they're not always sweet. So... Just like any other kids, right? They could not take away sin. Why? Because they were not rational beings. They were not moral beings. They could not volunteer to die in our place. They could not willingly give themselves to die in our place. And that is what was required for sins, our sins, to be taking, taken away from us. You see, so you could go to the pen, you know, I never tried this, but, you know, you'd, you'd call them. And they might come if they think they're getting feed. Actually, that's the only reason they'd come. <clears throat> but you could say, hey, you know, which one of you wants to die for me today? You know, and they're just going to stand there, you know... They're not, they can't volunteer. They can't say, you know, John, you've been such a great owner and you've cared for me and you've fed me so much that, yeah, I'll give myself for you today. They, they don't think. They, they don't have a you know, thinking mind like we do. They're not moral, rational beings. They can't volunteer for us. <clears throat> Sinners, therefore, needed something better. They didn't need more lambs. You know, people may sometimes think, oh, it's such a tragedy, you know, that in A.D. 70, the Romans, you know, destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, and then a little later, uh, wiped the rest of it out. And so there's, there haven't been any more sacrifices. And what a shame. But more, more sacrifices isn't going to solve the problem. More lambs is not going to solve the problem. They didn't need more lambs. They needed a lamb with no equal. You get that? They needed a lamb who had no equal. some A lamb that was not like any of the other lambs. A lamb who actually had the ability to take away sins. That's what they needed. They didn't have that yet. But God had a plan. Long before Moses, God used a man named Abraham to create a living picture of God's plan. So you remember the story, wonderful story, where... God says, okay, Abraham, you know, he'd, he'd finally had a son uh, by Sarah, Isaac. And, you know, he says, this is great. Okay, God had promised it and promised it. And, you know, here, we're, you know, we're, we're like, you know, way past geezer, you know. And we've had this, you know, kid. And it's great. And then God says, okay, I, I want you to sacrifice your, your son. Your only son. Only son by Sarah. You know, and so Abraham, he's like, okay. That's what God said. I'm going to do it. So they get the servants to help them carry stuff. And and they get the wood and the fire. You know, they had to carry fire with them. They didn't have, you know, a 
a lighter or anything to carry back then or matches and and they're on their way and then at one point Abraham says tells us the servants okay you guys stay here and God leads them to Mount Moriah which ends up being in what's now Jerusalem <clears throat> and uh, the Temple Mount well he leads them there and as as they're on their way just the two of them you know Isaac's a smart kid he'd seen this before you know that you, we're going to have a sacrifice you got to have some wood to burn and you got to have fire to burn it but you got to have an animal and so they're walking along and Isaac's like um dad where's the lamb for the burnt offering you know he's like oh, I know dad's old but you know he's forgetting things here now and and then whether he realized it or not Abraham spoke prophetically he said God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering beautiful picture this is God's plan and like most many of the prophets he wasn't completely sure what he was how significant this was and of course in his mind he thought it was going to be Isaac and God had other plans like okay I just, just wanted you to show me your faith that you believe me and you'll obey me but God said you know, Abraham, really, that's my job. It's not your job to give your own son. That's my job. And so God provided a ram for that offering so he didn't have to offer up Isaac. God gave him a ram. God's lamb was still to come. Abraham prophetically said, God will provide a lamb. Not on that day yet to come. And so long after Moses, a, a prophet, Isaiah, was more specific about the lamb that God would provide. Abraham just knew God's going to provide. Isaiah said, here's more about that lamb. So turn over to Isaiah 53. Isaiah is going to tell us in this as we read through it. We're going to read just a few verses, but the lamb is not going to be an animal. The lamb is going to be a person. In fact, he will be the one Isaiah has already identified as the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. He will be the Messiah. So Isaiah 53, let's start in verse 3. Talking about the servant of Yahweh he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he, was, he did not open his mouth like a lamb. That has led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Verse 10. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. You see there's that willingness. He gave himself. He volunteered. Father says I need someone to die. And Jesus said that's me. He's perfectly on board. Fully on board with the Lord. I will die for our people. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. For the joy set before him, right? By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, this Jesus, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So Isaiah tells us more. Okay? So, think about Luke 2, which comes up. We, we think about Luke 2 a lot this time of year. We read it. We sing about it. and Songs from it, taken from it. And we're still, we're, this is God's plan. Abraham, God will provide a lamb. Isaiah, the lamb's going to be a person. He's going to be the Messiah, servant of Yahweh. Now, Luke 2. We're going to look more at Luke 2 next week, okay? So we're not going to go there today. But <clears throat> just remember, you know the story. So Mary is pregnant by this time, and she and Joseph are on their way to Bethlehem because he has to register for the census because he's of the city of David. That's where he has to go. Um, and, and so they, they make their way there. By the time they get there, it's time for her to deliver. And that's where she had her baby, as we sing and read so often there in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is only six miles from Jerusalem, and when we were there in Jerusalem, and you're, you know, Jerusalem's remember is up in the hills and and uh, or, or mountains. You know, they're not real big mountains, but they're mountains, and <clears throat> you can see you see Bethlehem from there, and you can see like on the slide the the, the terrain. You can see these pastures. And sometimes you'll get to see sheep these days out there, goats maybe, but um, that's a picture of there. That's not right next to Bethlehem, but it's in the hill country there. Um, that's you know the, the, what it looks like. You have these lush pastures where they will pasture their sheep. And because it's only six miles from Jerusalem, many of the sheep that were used in the temple sacrifices were raised in that area. It was a perfect area to raise sheep. And, you know, you, you didn't plant grain as much there uh, because you can see, you know, it's kind of hilly and rocky and stuff like that. So, great for raising sheep <clears throat> and close by. How fitting, then, that Jesus would be born there. He's the Lamb of God, right? He should be born there. He should be visited by shepherds, right? Just like all those other lambs. Many of them raised in that area by shepherds and then sacrificed. Here the Lamb of God was born in the same area. Fast forward 30 years or so. So, using the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, the Jews had figured out when Jesus or when the Messiah was supposed to be coming. And, and they figured it out precisely. Okay? And they did. They knew He was due on the scene any day now. They anticipated Messiah with great expectation. <clears throat> the time is near. Is Messiah here? That is kind of the, the, the kind of thinking, not what they actually said, but the kind of thinking that they had. You know, they were excited. Messiah should be here by now. Where is He? Is it this guy? Is it this guy? Is it this? They also knew that God had promised to send a prophet ahead of Messiah. The Old Testament closes with this promise in Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. <clears throat> and then after that promise, God was silent for 400 years. It's like, I'm going to send somebody ahead of me coming, God coming to earth. And then no more. Turn now to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, where we, where we had started out earlier today in our Scripture reading. God broke that silence. <clears throat> he broke that silence when John the Baptist suddenly burst onto the scene. He was unique. He was preaching repentance. And so... The religious leaders, as we read earlier, they were wondering, you know, is this is this the one? And they would, and so they grilled him. Who are you? And he was emphatic, saying, "I am not the Christ." That word "Christ" is Greek for Messiah, the Anointed One. I'm not. I'm not the servant of Yahweh. I'm not the guy in Isaiah 53. I'm not the guy in Genesis 22. 
And then he referred to Isaiah 40, I'm this voice in the wilderness. I'm the one that's supposed to come before him to prepare the way. So on the very next day after they had grilled him, John had the opportunity to point out Messiah to the crowd. So John chapter 1, look verse 29. The next day... He saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John is drawing upon all that wealth of Old Testament teaching about lambs, the sacrifices, the law about sacrificing lambs, and all the, those historical occasions, the daily lambs that were, that were sacrificed. He's drawing on that. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God. What a fascinating thing. They were expecting someone to say, Okay, there's the King. Or, there's Messiah. They weren't expecting, Behold the Lamb of God. And as a Jew, who was quite familiar with lambs dying a lot, you're like, Huh. It's a curious name to give this one. The Lamb of God. See, this is the one that Abraham spoke of. God will provide a lamb. The lamb. Jesus is the only lamb who could take away, who could actually take away sin. He's the one in Isaiah 53 who was like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. He's the one in Isaiah 53 who actually bore our sins and carried away our griefs. You see, and so John would say he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is actually able to take our sin off of us and put it on himself. And he died for it on the cross. He took it from us, took it away from us so that those sins no longer, no would never, ever be held against us. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, that becomes ours. That promise that He has taken away our sin. And He will never give it back to us because He paid for it. He's the only Lamb that could actually take away our sins. He's the only one who could bear the penalty himself. And as I said before, he's the only one who could volunteer for that. He's the only one who willingly could say, because all those, those lambs that were killed, they didn't, they couldn't volunteer. They didn't have a mind that could volunteer. Jesus did. He came willingly. He was happy to carry out the Father's plan to die in our place. And John said that this lamb would not be the sin offering for Jews only. He was a sin offering for people from around the world. And John, John the Baptist summed up his witness by saying that Jesus is the Son of God. He pulls in another name of Jesus. Because he wants us to understand that this is a lamb like no other. This is a lamb with no equal. This lamb is God. See, Messiah is the Son of God. Calling Him God's Son shows how unique He is. That's why He would call Him the Lamb of God, not, oh, He is a Lamb of God. No, He's the Lamb of God. He is unique. 
He's unique because He's the only one who could take away our sin. He's unique because He is God's Son. No other lamb was human. No other lamb was God's Son. Only Jesus. He's a lamb without equal. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one Lamb who has no equal. Jesus is the one Lamb able to take away our sins. Praise the Lord. He's the one Lamb able to take away our sins. And so whenever you hear these words, Behold the Lamb of God, your heart should leap within you. You should say, Jesus has taken away my sin because He's the only one that could. And He was happy to do it. He loved me and gave Himself for me. Behold, the Lamb of God, born in Bethlehem. John, in his gospel, doesn't have a, a what we call a, a Lord's Supper passage. Uh, we have that period, but he talks about other things. He doesn't do like the synoptic uh, gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they tell us, you know, this is my body and my blood and... <clears throat> But there's a passage that will start building toward that. In, in John 6, uh, what Jesus, John is telling us some things about Jesus where he's tying in the idea of Jesus feeding the multitude and you've got the, that Jesus was the manna that came down out of heaven feeding God's people. But, but it's also taking this idea of eating and drinking that will become later on in the Lord's Supper a representation of our faith. And so Jesus is telling them, you have to trust in me and in me alone for salvation. If I am to take away your sins, you have to trust in me. And so he used these phrases that, that just, you know, they, were, they weren't sure what to do with it. And we find at the end of chapter 6, a lot of them just left. They're like, okay, I don't get that. But we are told at the beginning of the chapter that Passover is near. And this is the Passover prior to the Passover where Jesus would die, okay, as the Lamb of God. So Passover is getting close. Jesus is talking about uh, bread, eating and drinking, kind of tying all these different ideas together. In chapter 6, verse 51... Jesus tells them, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's telling them to eat the bread there. So, I want us to think for a moment, during this time of the Lord's table, where... We're still worshiping our Lord Jesus. We're worshiping the one who gave himself for us. We're worshiping the Lamb of God who gave himself. Because remember in the Passover, they sacrificed that lamb and then they ate that lamb. And Jesus is going to tie these things in. He's going to say, you have to eat my flesh to be saved. Not to take that little wafer that we have, a little bit of bread. That just reminds us of what we did. By faith, we, we, we put our trust in Jesus, in Him alone. And so, I'm going to stop there and come back to this in just a moment. I want you to meditate on these truths about Jesus as the Lamb of God. And what it meant for Him to be that one perfect final Passover Lamb. To be the Lamb of God who can actually take away the sin of the world. Meditate on that.